want to welcome everybody to week seven of apologetics. We're going to be defeating macroevolution tonight. And I want to, yeah, there's, apolog, yeah, there's applause because that is exciting to, uh, to actually refute. Now, I want to make a comment before we get started. Last week, we proved the existence of God. And what I want you to look at this week is, you know the football term piling on? When you tackle somebody and they're already down in the ground and then a bunch of guys jump into the pile anyway? Tonight is, a, in a sense, a piling on because we've already proven the existence of God. Now, that doesn't mean we persuade people, but we did prove our case. Tonight, when we defeat macroevolution, all it is is adding to our case. We're piling on, okay? But it's a good thing because by piling on, we're giving more glory to God by defeating Darwinian evolution, all right? Now, let me get started. Let me just pray, and then we'll get started. Into the, I've got a lot of material. I want to go for about 50 minutes, and then I want to get through the fossil record. We'll take our break. And then I want to get into irreducible complexity after the break. And that's where I get really excited. So you might have to tie me down and contain me, okay? So let's pray and get started. Heavenly Father, Lord, we uh, thank you that we can come together tonight and that, Lord, we can uh, learn how to defend the faith that has been once for all handed down to the saints. And, Lord, I ask for the people on the Internet and the people here and all those who would listen that they would be inspired uh, to defend your faith, that they would uh, proclaim that there's only you as the creator. And Lord, that we'd be able to use this as a stepping stone to proclaim the gospel, that Jesus Christ is the only way to salvation. So Lord, I ask that you would speak through even somebody like me tonight and that you would glorify your name and that you would convince the world that you, we are, in fact, as human beings, are fearfully and wonderfully made. And we ask that this would be accomplished in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, what I want to do, first of all, is I, I would feel remiss, I guess, if I didn't give you a little bit of history of evolution and where the ideas initially came from. But I don't want to spend a lot of time on this slide. So what I'm going to do is give you a very brief history. And I'm actually going to put up three philosophers all together. And there are, two of them are ancient Greek philosophers, and one is a Roman philosopher. And, of course, Aristotle, you all recognize that name. First of all, Anaximander, he was a... Greek philosopher in 611, uh, he was actually born, and he lived till 547. Aristotle from 384 to 322, and the Roman philosopher Lucretius from 99 to 55 BC. What I want you to see with all three of these philosophers is that they held to a form of evolution. However, what links all of these early evolutionists is that none of them believed in natural evolution like we have in the Darwinian period. All of their evolution is based on the pantheon of gods. So they believed, yes, in some of the same concepts, but they believed that all life was going to evolve into the gods with a small g. Do you see what I'm saying? So we would disagree with them not only in the evolutionary side of things, but also their understanding of the polytheistic gods that they were going to evolve into. But what I want you to realize, it's really not until the Enlightenment that naturalism takes hold because, remember, both the rationalists and the empiricists, the rationalists said all truth is in our mind, and we're born with it, and we can unlock it if we think properly. And the empiricists said all truth can be found in a test tube or through observation. And it's in that backdrop that we find somebody come on the scene named Erasmus Darwin. Now, Erasmus Darwin is actually the grandfather of Charles Darwin. He was a British physician, and the only reason I'm citing him isn't because he was some genius when it came to evolutionary thought, he would, I think, side on the evolutionary uh, side of things. 
But the main thing with this man is he was very wealthy. And why that's important is because his wealth as a British physician enables his grandson, Charles Darwin, to basically uh, live a life where he's not tied down to a career. So when we get to Charles Darwin, born in 1809, when he grows up, he ends up being a divinity student, he leaves that, then he becomes a medical student, and he leaves that, and he becomes very flighty. And it allows him, the wealth of his family, to join in 1831 the HMS Beagle. And he travels on the HMS Beagle, and he goes around a lot of the world, actually. He's in the Atlantic Ocean, the Pacific Ocean. He ends up in the Galapagos Islands. Of course, we've all heard of that. But when he gets back in 1836, he actually proposes his first hypothesis. Okay? Now, let me put up his hypothesis, because I want you to realize this is actually what ends up informing his book that he writes in 1859, uh, which is The Origin of the Species. So here are his four hypotheses. Here's number one, uh, one through four. First of all, it's adaptation. All animals adapt to their environment. Number two, variation is all organisms are variable in their traits. Uh, three, he said that there is over-reproduction. All organisms will produce beyond their environment's carrying capacity. And finally, natural selection, where he said some organisms survive and reproduce better than others. Now, natural selection is, it ends up being the engine that drives macroevolution. And you can see that thought really transfer from his hypothesis over to his book. Okay? Now, what I want to do is I want to read to you from his own words on the origin of species. Now, what I want you to see in this quote that I have, this is in the introduction to his book, Darwin is going to have something highlighted in red. And what he has highlighted in red is going to contradict the scriptures directly. In other words, he's going to espouse the idea that everything, all life, evolved from a single-celled organism, maybe one or two of them, to all life that we have today. And you'll see that in the highlighted section. Okay? And then there's a, you're going to see a section that's underlined, and I'll show you that. It actually plays in our side. So let me explain. Here's his writing. He says, In considering the origin of species... It is quite conceivable that a naturalist reflecting on the mutual affinities of organic beings on their embryological relations, their geographical distribution, geological succession, and other such facts might come to the conclusion that each species had not been independently created but had descended like varieties from other species. So again, here is the rub in the conflict with the biblical account in Genesis 1. He is saying, or at least alluding to the fact, that he believes all creatures are evolving from a single-celled organism to all life we have today. Whereas in Genesis 1, we're going to see all life is actually created according to different kinds. So God makes specific groups, which we call species or maybe perhaps genus. And I'll make the case later what these different groups are. Okay? So you can see where this is in conflict already, his ideas with the Bible. But now listen to what he says. He continues. He says, Nevertheless, such a conclusion, even if well-founded, would be unsatisfactory until it could be shown how the innumerable species inhabiting this world have been modified so as to acquire that perfection of structure with co-adaptation which most justly excites our admiration. You see, even Darwin, Charles Darwin, saw perfection in what we would call the created order. So much so that he knew we were going to have to have justification through evidence 
to deny that it was in fact created and it came about by chance through gradual means. So you and I can look and say, yes, he was right here. His intuition is right. We better have good evidence. And as I'm going to show you, they don't. They don't have good evidence. The evidence, in fact, is really bad, and it's getting worse. And it's actually validating more and more the creationist side. Okay? Now, what I want to do in this next slide is I want to show you the conflict with the book of Genesis. And I know these are passages that you've all read before, but I want to look at them very closely with you and even look at a little Hebrew in the next slide. First of all, Genesis 1:11 through 12 it says this, Then God said, Let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed and fruit trees on earth, bearing fruit after their kind. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding after their kind, and trees bearing fruit with seed in them after their kind. So you can see what's highlighted red is their kind. So God seems to be indicating that when he creates, he creates things in groups, and then uh, like organisms come from their own kind. Now, remember, Darwin is saying that it all comes from a single-celled organism. All right, So you can see we have a conflict, at least a seemingly, uh, seemingly we have a conflict. Genesis 1.21, God created the great sea monsters and every living creature that moves, with which the water swarmed after their kind and every winged bird after its kind, and God saw that it was good. And then in verse 24, God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures after their kind, cattle and creeping things and beasts of the earth after their kind. And it was so. God made the beasts of the earth after their kind and the cattle after their kind and everything that creeps on the ground after its kind. I think he's trying to tell us something. When he created, it came after their own kind. Okay. Now, in this next slide, what I want to do is I want to explore where we get this term after its kind because I want to give you some exegetical evidence the last thing you and I as Christians want to do is misrepresent what the Bible says. Do you remember the Catholic Church? They did that with what's called the geocentric theory. And they, were, they swore that the Bible proved the geocentric theory, that everything revolved around the earth. And they were wrong. And because they were wrong, they were misrepresenting the scriptures, and it made them look bad, and it makes our cause look bad. So we want to make sure... We're not saying something the Bible isn't. So what I want to do is I want to give you exegetical evidence that, in fact, we do see categories of design in this section of Scripture. And what I want you to see is the Hebrew word that is being used for uh, the NES version translates it after their kind. The term that we get that from in Hebrew is lamino. Okay? And you always, in Hebrew, usually put the emphasis of the accent on the last syllable. So this would be lamino. Okay? Now, what I want you to see here is that there's actually a root to this word, and the root of the word is mean, and there's what's called a, pre, a, a pronominal suffix and also a prefix on this word. Now, we're going to learn stuff actually from these suffixes and prefixes. Let me show you the suffix first. This is a third-person masculine singular pronominal suffix. Now, why is that important? Notice in the NAS version, it's translated after their kind. That would be a plural, okay? But this is a singular uh, suffix. What that means is a better translation is it would be its. It comes after its kind, a singular. There's only one kind. God made it and it came after that one kind. Do you see what I'm saying? So you want to be very precise instead of their kind. Now we talk like that, but just so there's no confusion, it'd be better translated its. Now what's the importance of that? 
Well, the singular ending strongly suggests that each usage of this word has its own group to which it belongs by order of the creator. So when God created it, he created it after its own kind. There was one group. And then everything within that group, genetic or you know, through reproduction, came about. But there wasn't this evolution from a lower form or another form at all. Okay? That's what we learn from that, and that's why that ending is important. Now let's look at the prefix. The prefix is actually a prepositional prefix, and the preposition can be translated to, according to, or after. And of course, the NES has it after. And I would have preferred according to because I think it indicates the technical enumeration that's being um, talked about here. So what's being referred to is these creatures are according to its kind, singular. All right? Now, this technical enumeration of creatures, we see it in Deuteronomy 14, when God talks about what type of creatures are clean to eat and what aren't. Um, He also talks about that in Leviticus chapter 11, and also in Ezekiel 47. Okay, so these are the different passages that God uses mean, which is the root of this word. So, what's the big deal here? Well, in Leviticus 11, let me show you an example where we start to see that, yes, God is drawing distinctions between categories that we see in our taxonomy, and I'm going to show you taxonomy, the different um, levels that biologists use to, to organize things. He actually is making distinctions. So in Leviticus 11:14, it says, the falcon after its kind, okay, and that's the same word. And then in Leviticus 11:16, it says, the hawk after its kind, that refers to divisions within falcon forms, which is an order. And on the next slide, that's going to make sense because you'll see the taxonomy groups. So that's within order. So here God is making a distinction within the order of falcon forms, and yet he has subdivisions called mean, which is the word we're looking at, and it's probably within the genus or the species. My whole point in saying all this is God is making distinctions and categories. There's no way around it. And so because he's doing that, We can't claim anything other than the fact that there's a contradiction or a conflict between Darwinian evolution and the Bible. And also we see, for instance, grasses, which are angiosperms in Genesis 1, that indicates a distinction in order as well. Let me show you what I'm talking about with these taxonomy groups. You guys remember remember these from your biology days. I had to brush up, I tell you. I couldn't even remember what a mammal was. So, (laughs) But here, maybe you guys remember these. Um, in fact, there should be one up here probably. There's a domain. But this is a basically a good, a good taxonomy representation. You have kingdom, phylum, class, order, family, genus, and species. And I gave you the example of mankind, you and I, right, human beings. And so we would be in the animalia kingdom. A phylum doesn't apply to us. It's plants only. We'd be in the mammalia class, primates, hominid, uh, homo sapiens, Okay. Now, here's the big thing that I want you to see. Again, the Hebrew term mean seems to refer from order down to species in the Bible. That's how we see it used. So, for instance, order on down to species, right? And it certainly limits the possibility of cross-kingdom up here, ancestry to living things as Darwin maintains. So, in other words, Darwin is maintaining that single-celled organisms evolved and filled all five kingdoms. We have five basic kingdoms. I don't even know them all. Okay, but we, I know we have five, all right? So, in other words, Darwin is saying evolution happens up here, and a single-celled organism can cross all of the kingdoms and provide for all of life that we see. Yet God's word clearly says that he made things sometimes after their own order, sometimes after their own family, sometimes after their own genus, and sometimes after their own species. 
So, again, the big picture, the big idea. Darwinian evolution and the biblical account are irreconcilable with one another. We can conclude three things. Either the Bible's right, Darwin is right, or neither is right. Okay? And I think we can safely conclude, and after we look at all the evidence, we'll see that the Bible is right, and in fact, Darwin is wrong. All right? Now, the definition of terms. I want to go through these definition of terms just because, again, it's been a while since all of us have been in biology, me included. So I found these terms actually from the uh, University of Maryland, and I liked them, and I reworded some, reworded some of them so they made a little bit more sense. But let me go through some of these, and then we're going to get started. Genes. First of all, let's talk about genes. Now, that's not what we're wearing, by the way, right? Genes. This is specific segments of DNA, the deoxyribonucleic acid. I think I got that right. That controls cell structure and function, the functional units of inheritance. Sequences of DNA bases usually code for a polypeptide sequence of amino acids. What's the big thing with genes? Well, genes are made in chromosomes. And when we have a mutation, a mutation that leads to uh, this macroevolution cycle, it happens at the genetic level in the genes. That's where the problem is. All right. So from genes, it's good to know what a genotype is. This is the genetic makeup of an organism with regard to an observed trait. So friends, a genotype is the characteristics of a creature from within. It's the genetic makeup. So you actually can't see it. You'll, you'll, set, you'll end up seeing an observed trait, but the actual observation is what's called a phenotype. So think of the genotype as the genetic makeup, and we get to the phenotype, it is actually what you see or observe. Does that make sense? All right, so the phenotype is the observed properties or outward appearance of a trait, the physical expression of the alleles possessed by an organism. Now, what's an allele? An allele is the alternate set of genes. So whenever you have genes, you have two of them. All right, do you guys remember doing your Punnett squares in biology? Do you guys remember doing any of those? I remember vaguely doing them. But what you have is you have uh, two chromosomes and you have two sets of genes. This is the alternate set of genes. And the, the reason why alleles are important is because it enables us to have genetic variation. In other words, some of you were born to parents that had blue eyes and brown eyes. Well, brown is dominant, but they're a set of alleles. So there would be like a 50% chance you would get brown eyes, a 25% chance you'd get blue, and then another 25, you'd kind of be in between. You'd be hazel, green. I don't know what's in between brown and blue, but it'd be something in between. That's what alleles gives you. Now, the reason I'm mentioning this is this doesn't contradict our understanding of microevolution because you and I believe that, yes, there is variation within the species. Okay? So we'll talk more about that in a minute. Now, the next thing I want you to realize is this. This is the engine that drives macroevolution. It's called natural selection. This is where random genetic mutations, and again, it's happening at this level, change the genotype of an organism, right? So the genetic makeup. And better adapted individuals are more likely to survive to reproductive age and thus leave more offspring. So take any given critter. If that critter has a mutation and the mutation allows it to survive better than its fellow critters, it will survive to reproduce, passing on its genetic trait. That is supposedly the engine that drives macroevolution. That's how they're reasoning, okay? And again, they're, they're believing that you can actually move a species from its species upward to different species all the way to completely different life forms altogether, all right? 
Now, that, the, what I just described is actually gradualism. Gradualism is the incremental changes due to natural selection in the genotypes of species that allow them to change gradually over time. So whereas you and I believe that God created the different groups at a point in time, Darwin was teaching that they evolved gradually through mutations. Okay, And in fact, again, it started with a single-celled creature, and it evolved and evolved until all life we have today very gradually. So that's gradualism. All right. Now, let me just give you two more terms, and the next one is macroevolution. And I think it's important that we see the distinction between macro and microevolution. Let me tell you a little story. I was flying with a guy one day, um, and I was going to Detroit. I never forget it. And this guy that I was flying with in the cockpit, he actually had a degree in biology. And I asked this man if he had ever seen a distinction in his training in biology between macro and microevolution, and he had not. And I was a little astonished that somebody would get a degree in biology and never have made that distinction between macro and microevolution. Now, the reason I make that statement is to impress upon you the importance that when you're out witnessing on the street or at a Perkins or wherever you are, you're going to sometimes have to educate these people because in the liberal academia, our views aren't being heard. You see, our side, microevolution doesn't even exist. To them, it's all evolution. It's all macro. You see what I'm saying? So here a man had a four-year degree. It'd be like me having a four-year degree in aviation, which I, I kind of have, I guess. I don't know what you'd call my degree in, but in not knowing anything about flaps or something. Do you see what I'm saying? It just seemed very bizarre. So you and I, when we're out and about, we're going to have to train people how to think. All right? So let me show you the macroevolution. That is evolution that proceeds from matter to man. This type of evolution maintains that all life evolved from single-celled organisms and evolved across all taxonomy groups to form all life we see today. Okay, So this is a vertical type of evolution. Now, here's microevolution. These are changes and variation within a given species or genus. This type of variation explains why we can have many different kinds of dogs while denying the possibility of a dog evolving into other species like an elephant. So let me show you the picture. I like to think in pictures because I'm simple. So let's start over here with macroevolution. Think about what's being stated here. In macroevolution, you start off with a single-celled amoeba, for instance, or a paramecium or whatever, and it ends up evolving through mutations to all living things. So it's vertical. All right. Think of macroevolution as vertical, whereas microevolution, we have these different species and genuses and families that are made by God, and they cannot be broken. So think of this like this heavy line as a ceiling. So the birds were never going to evolve out of the ceiling, but rather they're stuck horizontally. And so you can have many different kinds of birds. You can have canaries and you can have blue jays and cardinals and uh, all sorts of cool birds. Whatever your favorite bird is, you've got it. You've got variation. It's horizontal, you see. But a bird will always be a bird. It will never evolve into anything else. In the same way with dogs, you've got dogs like chihuahuas, or as my mom says, a chihuahua. <laughs> she calls it a chihuahua. I don't know why. Or if you've got St. Bernard's or Dalmatians or whatever, right? You've got all sorts of different kinds of dogs. All right? But again, a dog will never turn into a horse or a mule or something like that. And then you've got fish. You've got your crappies and your bass and your walleye, and you've got all sorts of fish. But the fish will never break out of that. There will always be some sort of fish, okay? And again, that's microevolution. And we see variation within the species within microevolution. Okay, 
scientific problems with macroevolution, there are many more that I have listed here. There's actually about four more that I know of. These are the big four, and these are the four that I use when I'm out witnessing to people. Okay, um, So just realize you guys will be able to come up with other problems with macroevolution, but these are the big four that I like to use. And the first one is the law of biogenesis. Do you guys remember when we were proving the existence of God last week? We used the second law of thermodynamics. Remember that? And that law told us that we cannot have an eternal universe. The law of biogenesis is to biology what the second law of thermodynamics is to the cosmological argument. Do you see what I'm saying? So let me read it to you and I'll I'll expound on it a little bit. The law of biogenesis says all life comes from life. Naturalistic evolution, however, maintains that the original single-celled organism came about by chance in the primordial soup about 3.5 billion years ago. So again, the law of biogenesis says that you can only have life from fellow life. Well, what is the evolutionist saying? The evolutionist would have us believe that life can come from non-living material. Now, this is a law of science. And so right at the outset, we should ask the evolutionist, who is being consistent with the laws of uh, science? You and I are, aren't we? We're the ones who are basing our knowledge and our belief system on a law of science, they're the ones who are taking things on faith, aren't they? Okay, does that make sense? So I want you to think about this. There was an experiment, and it was called, have anybody ever heard of the Miller-Ure experiment? This is back in actually 1953, and this Miller experiment, what these scientists tried to do is they tried in a test tube in a scientifically controlled environment create the uh, building blocks to life, And in this experiment, they actually were able to come up with only amino acids. That's all they could do, okay? Now, there was two big problems with their experiment. When they came up with amino acids, first and foremost, that's not anywhere close to having life, okay? You have to have uh, uh, nucleic acid. You have to have proteins. They didn't come anywhere as close, and no scientist has ever been able to come close and remember, this is in, that would, you would call that intelligent design because that's not happening by accident. You have intelligent men within test tubes trying to create life, and they couldn't do it. But the second problem with the experiment was the fact that they were using an atmosphere that didn't exist um, at the time because the original atmosphere, most scientists are saying it was volcanic, and they were using a completely different um, atmosphere altogether. So there were several problems with their experiment. However, that experiment is still in our textbooks today, and it's used to buffalo kids into thinking that scientists almost came up with life, and if we just keep trying, it might happen. Okay? And so it's completely farcical. It's laughable. Friends, there's a man named Jonathan Wells, and he wrote a book called Icons of Evolution. And what he said is, think about this. Think about taking a test tube with a bunch of salt water in it. And take a living cell, an actual living cell, and poke a hole in it. And if you could dump all its contents in this test tube with everything that's required for life and just nurture it and do everything you could, you would still never come up with life. And that's having the very components of life. Friends, not a single scientist has ever been able to come up with life on their own. And so this law of biogenesis is devastating. Living things cannot come from non-living things. And to say otherwise is to say something beyond observation. And if you're saying something beyond observation, then how is that scientific? And that's exactly what the evolution is saying. So here is their first thing they're taking on faith, the violation of the law of biogenesis. So this is exactly the first thing you want to bring up, I think, on the street corner 
is the law of biogenesis. Okay? Now, the second thing is the complexity of the Cambrian fossils. Now, this gets a little technical, and I may not bring this up on the street corner, okay? (laughs) Uh, But more than 5,000 species that are very complex are found within the Cambrian strata. The Cambrian strata is the second oldest strata. Remember, strata is a layer, right? So the Precambrian strata is the oldest layer. Well, the Cambrian strata is the second oldest, and here's the rub. Many of these species have good nervous systems, intestines, complex circulation systems, stomachs, eyes, etc. So the question we need to be asking the evolutionists is this. Where are the ancestors with the above systems partially formed? Where is the partially formed stomach? Where is the partially formed intestine? We don't see it. We see it in the Cambrian fossil strata completely formed. Okay? Well, what is that defeating? That's defeating gradualism. Okay, so much so that a, a man named Stephen Jay Gould ends up coming up with something called punctuated equilibrium. We'll talk about that in a minute. So again, we're seeing these creatures enter the Cambrian strata fully formed, and that's very, very puzzling and I think troubling to the macroevolutionist. Next, we see fossil record problems where transitional forms that are needed to prove macroevolution are non-existent. We saw Darwin in his opening statement to the Uh, the origin of the species, he says this very thing, that if, in fact, his theory is going to be borne out to be true, we should have fossil evidence to support it. And lo and behold, the more time that goes on since Darwin has lived, we have less evidence of it. Okay, and I'll show you a lot of it here tonight in a bit. Now, the fourth thing, and this is the thing that I love, I think this is the coup de grace, this is the thing that we want to be using at embers and on the street, is irreducible complexity. This theory shoots macroevolution in the foot and it cannot recover. It says the complexity of organisms on a cellular level is such that the systems must exist fully formed or would cease to function at all. So, for instance, I'll show you later after the break, we're going to get into irreducible complexity. The example that's cited initially by Michael Behe who espoused this uh, theory is a mouse trap. Think about a mouse trap. It has wood. Right? It has a holding bar, a smashing bar, and a spring. You take any one of those components away, you don't get yourself a mousetrap, you just got yourself a big piece of junk. Right? It doesn't work at all. So that's the idea behind irreducible complexity. All of the systems have to be there at once, or it doesn't work at all. Now, I want to start off with the lack of the fossil evidence. And the, what I would imagine you would do, I want to make this practical. What I do when I'm on the street is I usually memorize four of them, I, like with the fossil evidence. And if, let's say it takes you a while to memorize, maybe you have a few sheets in your Bible when you go out witnessing, okay, of the fossil record. And just take four of them because it's nice to have some ammunition when you get into macroevolution with people. So you can use um, some of the slides that I have or take them from other books or whatever, but I'm going to go through some of it with you here. Now listen to what Stephen Jay Gould says. This is a paper, he actually, an article he wrote in 1977, and he was the world's really leading paleontologist from Harvard University. He writes this, The extreme rarity of transitional forms in the fossil record persists as the trade secret of paleontology. The evolutionary trees that adorn our textbooks have data only at the tips and the nodes of their branches. The rest is inference, however reasonable, not the evidence of fossils. Okay? Now, he was so troubled by the lack of evidence that he actually espouses a theory called irreducible complexity. It was called punctuated equilibrium. Okay? In other words, he saw so little evidence in the fossil record. Remember, the fossil record, we should see 
organisms gradually evolving, right, into different organisms. But we never see that in the fossil record, and I'll show you that. So instead, what Stephen Jay Gould, he wanted to still hold on to evolution. What he said is organisms go for many, many years, you know, thousands perhaps, and they don't change at all. And all of a sudden, some cataclysmic event will come along, and it will force mutations on a grand scale, and you have a spike. And then all of a sudden, they'll level out again for a long time. And then you'll have another cataclysmic event, and you'll have a spike, and they'll have mutations. That's called punctuated equilibrium. The reason I mention it when I'm witnessing to people is, here we have an evolutionist, one of the best, saying that he's dissatisfied with what the fossil record is saying. He's not happy with it. And he is now shooting down gradualism, just like you and I are. And this guy has no dog in the race or pony in the show or whatever you want to say, right, uh, when it comes to our side. He doesn't, he's not trying to support creationism. He's just validating and verifying what we've been saying. Gradualism is kaput. It doesn't work, okay? All right, now let's get into some of the fossil evidence. I'm going to start off with one from 1912 named Piltdown Man. And by the way, anytime you see like Piltdown Man or Neanderthal Man, Oftentimes, it's not a man at all. It's a bone fragment, okay? So just keep that in mind. So here's Piltdown Man. There were actually fragments of a skull and a jawbone found in Sussex, England. All right? Now, it was exposed as a hoax in 1953 consisting of a lower jawbone of an orangutan and the skull of a modern man. All right? So it was exposed as a hoax. Now, here's the kicker, though, you guys. It was used as evidence in the Scopes Monkey Trial in 1925. Now, does anybody remember the Scopes Monkey Trial? That was a trial that happened in Tennessee where a school board, they had actually outlawed the teaching of evolution and they were espousing only the teaching of creation. That was their view. Well, they went to court and it ended up changing really education in America forever. That was one of the landmark decisions and it ended up kind of starting the ball rolling towards teaching evolution in the schools. Well, isn't it interesting that one of the pieces of evidence was completely fraudulent and they didn't know it? And it's very, it's very disheartening to me to see that the Scopes Monkey Trial... Remember the movie? Has anybody seen Inherit the Wind? Well, that, that movie is about the Scopes Monkey Trial. And here, all along, the evolutionists were using evidence that was a hoax. So anyway, let me give you some more. Here's one from, I believe it's um, 1891. Yeah, here's Java Man. Java Man, and again, it's not a man at all, you'll see, discovered by a Dutch scientist, Eugene de Boy, on an Indonesian island in 1891. It was regarded by evolutionists as a link between apes and humans. And um, all that was actually found was a skull cap, a femur, three teeth, and a big imagination. And again, time and time, you guys, will see through the, the evidence that these paleontologists, geologists, they dig up, all they really get is bone fragments and different pieces, all right? And yet they'll construct artist conceptions and different things to show and to confuse the general public into thinking, yeah, this should be an accepted theory, this idea of macroevolution. Now, the femur was later found not to belong with the skull cap at all, and that happens time and time again. I'll show you some more evidence of that in other cases. A man named Sir Arthur Keith, a Cambridge University anatomist, declared the skull cap to fall well within the range of modern humans and a 342-page report from prominent evolutionists also demolished any possibility of Java man being a transitional form. So here the skull cap is more than likely uh, from a human being, and it, this is a complete hoax once again and a misunderstanding of the evidence, but Time magazine still listed Java man 
as an ancestor to humans as recently as 1994. And that's one of the big issues in our current culture. Many of the people, the magazines, the, the textbooks, they still have these forms in them as if they're established facts. And that's what's so sad. That's why public opinion, it's hard to crack it because the media and academia controls thought. Okay, so the more we expose these things as being hoaxes, the better off we are. Let me show you some more. Nebraska man, it was discovered by, again, it's not a man you'll see, was discovered by Harold Cook, who was a rancher geologist in 1917. He had illustrations made in 1922 by Henry Fairfield Osborne, who taught at Columbia University. So what you'll see here is there's just a little fragment. It's actually, I think, part of a tooth that's found. Well, this man, Henry Fairfield Osborne, ends up writing a whole book as an artist's description of what this creature would have looked like. And it's all based on a little tooth. And so all of a sudden you see this book that he writes, and you think, well, my gosh, um, they've really got some good evidence. That's what the general public would have thought. And all they found was a tooth. All right. Now, the reason why I mention this Henry Fairfield Osborne, he's a really shady character. He teaches at Columbia University, which makes him shady right at the outset, right? Um, but no, but Osborne was a eugenicist who wrote a racist book called Man Rises to Pamasus. A eugenicist, remember, is a person that believes that some races are inferior to others, and they base their understanding on the, of that in macroevolution. He was a known eugenicist, and the reason why I point that out is you're going to see macroevolution tying into the eugenicist movement and also the belief in the Aryan race that even men like Hitler had. And, we're, and I think we should point out these moral problems with macroevolution when we're witnessing the people as well. And I'll show you at the end how we do that. So Osborne was not a nice man. He was a eugenicist, and he loved this uh, tooth. That's actually all that was found. And um, this evidence, again, was used as evidence in the Scopes Monkey Trial in 1925. Okay? But proven to be false, it's a false reconstruction from one tooth that was proven later to have come from an extinct pig. Isn't that devastating? So again, this evidence is used in the Scopes Monkey Trial, and it was bogus information. Okay, And we know that later from DNA testing. It wasn't even from a, a, an animal or a human or an, ape. It was, or an ape or a human. It was actually from a pig all along. Now here's a later one that we found in 1974. A French geologist, Maurice Taib, discovered Lucy in Ethiopia. Scientists have declared it to be a missing link primarily because it is a bipedal. Bipedal means it stands on its feet. Okay, It stands upward on its two feet rather than being a knuckle dragger. But the problem is Lucy's hip is not consistent with a bipedal hip. And many scientists, even the evolutionists, are saying Lucy cannot be a bipedal. In fact, it must be a knuckle dragger. And yet, <laughs> Gene, you like that knuckle dragger? Yeah, I, my wife has accused me of being a knuckle dragger a time or two. So the point is, is they're still using this evidence today as evidence of a missing link. And yet the very hip is not consistent with a biped, but rather with a knuckle dragger. And what's so funny is there's actually a video out that exists of workers sawing Lucy's hip. And when they're sawing, I don't know where you can find this video. I, I can't remember. I tried so desperately to find out where I saw it, and I can't find... I, anyway, the, these guys are sawing on the hip, and there's sawdust, or, well, not sawdust, but it's dust coming from the hip, and it's coating these guys, and they saw it down, and then they take pieces, and they glue it to it, and what they're really trying to do, I think, is make it look, look more human-like, 
okay, rather than knuckle-dragging like, all right? And again, to me, it's really troubling. It seems like they're doctoring the evidence. But it's still cited by evolutionists as a missing link. Now, I want you to look at this picture with me because what I want you to see is this actually right here. This is what was found of Lucy, okay? This is all that was found. Now, look above. You see this skull? This is, like, you'll see this in a museum. I forget what museum this is in. But this will have across it Lucy. But it's actually an artist's conception. What did they actually find of Lucy's skull? Well, it's right here. So you see up here we've got nicely formed eye sockets and a nose socket and these big chompers right here. Well, where are they in the picture? Well, they're not there. Well, they just made it up whole cloth, you see. But when the kids go to the museums, they say, well, my gosh, look at that. That certainly looks kind of like an ape and maybe between an ape and a man. But yet they didn't find any of that. And I really, as I was studying for this, I was looking at this, this picture right here. And I became really sad for those who are engrossed into the atheistic evolutionist movement because I thought, can you imagine deriving your whole worldview, everything that you believe, everything that you're about from this? Can you imagine digging in the dirt and saying, yes, this is what I'm about. This informs everything about me, who I am, where I came from, what life is about, why people are important, where I'm going, what my future is. This is it. This is what they're basing it on. And it's, it should, I think, sadness to the point where we want to be zealous to, d- to prove them wrong for their own sake so that we can proclaim the gospel for, to them and that we may save their souls. It's very sad. Now let me give you one more. This is a very modern one. Australopithecus ramadus. Say that a few times fast. That was, uh, this one generated much interest in the scientific media in 1994. The authors of this book, they boldly claimed when they found this, the fossils already available indicate that a long-sought link in the evolutionary chain of species between humans and their African ancestors occupied the Horn of Africa during the early Pliocene era. Okay, or Pliocene, all right? Now, this is what the men at Answers in Genesis actually declare about these fossils, and it's very illuminating. Here's the truth. The fossils were actually collected from the surface at 17 different positions, spread over 1.55 kilometers, and probably represent 17 separate individuals. The holotype is based solely on eight teeth, most of which were damaged. Other material discussed as representing our Australopithecus ramidus includes parts of the base of the skull found 550 meters away. Friends, that's six football fields away. Okay? And they're just putting it together like, well, that's got to be the same guy, right? This is outrageous. And fragmented arm bones found 270, that's three football fields away, 270 meters. The larger pieces of bone exhibited carnivore teeth marks. Eleven of the fossils were comprised of a single tooth, a piece of tooth, or in one case, a piece of bone. The paucity of material is illustrated in the detailed treatment given a single deciduous uh, temporary molar tooth found 1.55 kilometers from the location of the holotype 9. In appearance, now listen to this, in appearance and measurements, this tooth looks identical to a chimpanzee tooth. So here, all they have in this one instance is a tooth. And then when men who are, maybe they're biased towards our side, they look at it, they say, well, this is identical to a chimpanzee tooth. This is the evidence that they have. This is the evidence that they're basing macroevolution on. It's pathetic. 
And as Jonathan Wells says in his book, Icons to Evolution, it's getting worse for the evolutionists, not better. Okay? So, with that, you know what? I'm ahead of schedule a little bit. Let's take a break. Now, when I come back, I want to talk about irreducible complexity. And irreducible complexity is something that I think we should use when we're out witnessing. And it's actually user-friendly if you have some materials with you. Okay, so let's talk about that when we come back. And I think this devastates any of the evolutionist arguments. So that's what we'll talk about when we get back.